One of the questions that I have been asked many times over the years is, why did the vast majority of Jewish people in Christ's day reject him? And that's a very good question. That's a very reasonable, valid question to ask because after all, these were the people who personally witnessed our Lord's supernatural miracles, right? They had the privilege of hearing with their own ears his profound and remarkable and amazing teaching. And day by day, they were able to observe his perfect character under all kinds of situations and circumstances. And yet, at the end of the day, this was the generation that refused to accept him as their Messiah, as their King, as their Lord, as their Savior. The question is, why? Why? What did they see in Jesus and his message that turned them off? What was it about Jesus that bothered them to the point that they just rejected him? Well, we don't really have to speculate about that, how to answer that. We don't have to guess as to why many of Christ's contemporaries opposed him because Jesus himself tells us why his generation rejected him. And he tells us in Luke chapter 7, verses 29 through 35, which is the focus of our study this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles to that passage. Here's what we read. When the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? Well, they're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating No bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. Now, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture because it gives us Christ's own commentary, our Lord's statements, his explanation commentary on what the people of his day thought about him and why they spurned not only him but also his special herald his forerunner John the Baptist and this is important it's pertinent it's extremely relevant for us to know because although Jesus was specifically talking about the unique generation of first century Jewish people who physically observed him what he says about the unbelief of Israel certainly applies to unbelief today and unbelief in every generation since human nature never changes and therefore the reason that the people of Christ's day opposed and rejected him, folks, it's the same reason that people oppose and reject Christ today. Now these statements by Jesus as to why the vast majority of Jewish people of his day held both he and John the Baptist in contempt and I'll explain that in a moment because Last week and the previous weeks, I said they esteemed John, but I'm going to explain why they began to hold him in contempt. Our Lord's statements about this, they flow out of his praise and commendation of John the Baptist, having just commended John as the greatest man ever born of a woman and as a genuine prophet who functioned as his 
forerunner, as his herald, Jesus now sets forth his case that in spite of John being a true prophet, in spite of him being the true Messiah, the general population of Israel rejected the both of them. And why did they reject he and John? Well, that's what we're going to discover. That's what we're going to learn about this morning as the Lord gives us some incredible insight into the true nature of unbelief. You see, in explaining the unbelief of the Jewish people, the Lord shows us the real reasons for the people's rejection of him. Not the superficial and invalid excuses that they often give to cover up and justify their unbelief. And in doing this, the Lord has done us today a great service because by revealing the reasons that the people of Israel rejected he and John, he not only shows us what unbelief looks like, but also how it acts what it says, and why it behaves the way it does. It it helps to explain why people who you love and you witness to don't accept Christ. And he does this, our Lord does this by telling a story. He gives a parable about children playing in the marketplace, and this parable illustrates the truth that unbelief is characterized by, note this, an attitude that makes it impossible to be pleased impossible to be pleased and satisfied. See, unbelievers have such a deeply embedded disdain for Christ that they will find fault with him regardless of what he says, regardless of what he does. It doesn't matter. They'll find fault. And the reason for this is because unbelief, note this, is not rational. It's irrational. It refuses to be logical. It refuses to be reasonable In these verses, Jesus explains that unbelievers are like self-centered, foolish, bratty children who are just unreasonable because they want only what they want and they refuse to do what anyone else wants to do since nothing really pleases them. Now, in telling this parable about children playing in the marketplace, Jesus was teaching that the Jewish people of his day were just like this. They were like these bratty, self-centered children in that they were absolutely foolish, totally unreasonable in their reactions to he and John the Baptist. And that's really the point of this passage. He is exposing their unbelief for what it really is. Unreasonable, foolish, obstinate, fickle, irrational, and unbending. And he does all of that in these verses by giving us two major points that show how irrational unbelief really is. In our Lord's first point, seen in the parable of the children at play, he states what I would call a broad, general principle about unbelievers. That principle being that the unbelievers of his day were like these foolish children who refused to be satisfied by the games that their friends wanted to play. That's the broad principle. That's the first point. In our Lord's second point, he moves from the general principle of the foolishness of unbelief to the specific application of the foolishness of that generation's unbelief. And he does this by stating the precise criticisms that they leveled against he and John for the way that they both lived and behaved. So he goes from the broad general principle to the specific application of that principle. And then the Lord closes this passage by making a brief statement about the wisdom of his and John's behavior, the very wisdom that was so foolishly rejected by others. Now, that's an overview of the passage. 
First, the general principle, then how the principle applies. But before we look at these two major points, and these points being about the irrationality of unbelief, that's the theme of this passage, we need to see what appears to be Luke's parenthetical comment on the two groups of people who reacted so differently to the ministry of John the Baptist and therefore to Jesus. Now I say it's Luke's editorial comment or his parenthetical comment because while the text doesn't say that Luke said this and there are some Bible teachers who say Jesus has said this, it's just more natural to see it as Luke's parenthetical comment. It really doesn't doesn't matter because it's all God's inspired word. But what we see in these two complete opposite reactions from these two groups of people Two different reactions. It sets the stage for what Jesus has to say about how how irrational unbelief really is. Notice what we read in verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now Luke tells us that when the crowd of people listening to Jesus that day Meaning who? Meaning the common people, the the non-elite of society, including outcast tax collectors. When they heard Jesus pay tribute to John, they agreed with him. They liked what they heard, they agreed with him. In other words, hearing Jesus praise John as a true prophet who proclaimed God's message of repentance, the crowd of people, the general crowd, they were in agreement. That's what we are being told. And that's why we read, they acknowledged God's justice, which means that they accepted God's way as right. They didn't fight it. They didn't reject it. So that when in the past, at some point they had heard John preach his message of repentance, they agreed with him. And so that they turned from their sins and they submitted to his baptism, which was a baptism publicly declaring, I've repented of my sin. However, not everyone in Israel felt the same way about John the Baptist. Some were opposed to John and his message of repentance. And Luke, in his editorial comment, mentions in verse 30 who these people were and why they rejected John. This is key. This is important. He said, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, Luke tells us that unlike the common people of Israel, the Pharisees and lawyers. And by lawyers, he doesn't mean attorneys like we speak of lawyers today. He means those who were experts in the Mosaic law. They were called lawyers. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. Meaning what? Meaning they rejected God's way of repentance. And ultimately, they rejected the message of salvation. They refused to repent of their sin because in their smug self-righteousness, they didn't think they had any sin to repent of. And so they refused to submit themselves to John's baptism. Commenting on the Pharisees and the Jewish legal experts and their rejection of John's message of repentance, one Bible teacher explained their attitude this way. He said, the religious elite haughtily refused to confess their sin, repent or be baptized by John. Smugly secure in their self-righteous legalism, they viewed the common people who were interested in John with contempt. They had no use for the wilderness preacher, rejecting his call for repentance. They were annoyed by his warning of coming judgment and infuriated by his bold denouncing of them as a brood of vipers. Their religious pride caused them to reject the gospel's call for humble repentance. Their devotion to superficiality 
outwardly keeping the law, caused them to reject the gospel's provision of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Their sense of spiritual superiority caused them to reject as ludicrous the gospel's promise of forgiveness for even the most wretched sinners. Now listen closely because what I'm about to tell you is key to interpreting and understanding what Jesus is about to tell us about Israel's unbelief. I want you to look ahead to verse 31. Just jump down, look ahead to verse 31. And I want you to notice that in speaking about Israel's unbelief, Jesus refers to those who rejected him, note this, as the men of this generation. And what he means by this generation is the general population of Israel, not only the religious leaders. That's important to understand. Now, what that reveals is that the Lord knew that somewhere along the way, those who had once accepted and esteemed John the Baptist, as well as Jesus himself, would eventually change their mind about both of them. Now, in the case of John, as I've told you a number of times, he was initially an immensely popular figure in Israel. He was hailed as the first prophet in the nation in 400 years. But in time, his popularity would begin to diminish as more and more people would have these second thoughts, which are really negative thoughts, about him. And why? Why would they begin to have these negative thoughts about John? Well, under the influence of their religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, these lawyers, who rejected John as a prophet, they rejected his message of repentance, they rejected his testimony about Jesus being the Messiah, the people, the general population, the vast majority of people would eventually join them, follow their lead in rejecting John. They would agree with them. See, as the religious leaders of Israel grew in their opposition to Jesus, they persuaded the general population of Israel to agree with them in their opposition. And that meant that they had to reject John the Baptist too, not just Jesus, but John the Baptist, since the two of them were linked together. See, they really came as as one package since you couldn't possibly accept John as the forerunner of Messiah when he pointed to Jesus as the Messiah and then you rejected Jesus. You, You had to take both of them or neither of them. And so eventually the people turned against both of them with the result being that in refusing to believe in either of them, they found fault with both of them. So having set the stage, For what's to follow, Luke now proceeds to tell us what Jesus said about how irrational, how unreasonable unbelief really is. And the Lord does this by making two, these two major points that I told you about. But not simply about the foolishness of unbelief, but about the foolishness of unbelievers. His first point being this, unbelievers, he tells us, are like foolish children who refuse to be pleased. Unbelievers are like foolish children who just refuse to be pleased, can't be pleased, can't be satisfied. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? Now, Jesus begins his assessment of the Jewish people of his day by asking a question about them. He asks, to what then shall I compare this generation? What are they like? What's this generation like? Now, the way that Jesus posed this question was a very common way for an ancient rabbi to talk. 
Often when a Jewish rabbi wanted to make an important point, wanted the people to pay attention, he would use an analogy or an illustration that he would introduce with words like, to what is this matter like? Or how can I illustrate this point? That's precisely what our Lord is doing here by saying, to what then shall I compare this generation? What are they like? Jesus is telling us that I have an important point to make by way of an analogy, by way of this story, by way of this illustration. And the important point that he's about to make is that there's a definite similarity between the behavior of some children at play and the people's reaction to both he and John the Baptist. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, in using the words this generation, Jesus means the vast majority of the Jewish people of his day, and not simply the religious leaders. But keep in mind, the majority doesn't mean everyone. It doesn't mean everyone living in Israel at the time. And we know this was the case because not all the Jewish people of his day rejected him. There were plenty of people who accepted Christ as Messiah. He had many disciples. So this generation isn't a blanket condemnation of all Israel. He simply means that the general sentiment of the public was against he and John the Baptist. Now, I find that very interesting because as you'll recall, Jesus has just finished praising John because he was a man of unbending, unwavering conviction. And as you'll recall, the Lord said this so that the people listening wouldn't think that John was fickle and vacillating because of his recent doubt about Jesus. But in reality, what the Lord is about to say is that the vast majority of the people of Israel, they're the ones who are really fickle and vacillating, not John. He's not like that. You're like that, he's saying. Though at one point, as I said, they were highly enthused about John. But now, being led astray by their religious leaders, they're beginning to change their tune about the Baptist. And they're starting to be critical of him. They're the ones who are bending like reeds shaken by the wind of Pharisaical opinion, not John. So when Jesus asked, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? He means... To what shall I compare the general public of Israel? Those who are about to follow the tone of unbelief being set by their leaders. And he answers his own question in the next verse, verse 32. They are like children, he says, who sit in the marketplace and they call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang the dirge and you didn't weep. What are the men of this generation what are they like, Jesus asked. He says, they're like, they're like young children playing games in the marketplace. Now, what did the Lord mean by this? Well, you have to know a little bit about the culture of that day, the background of this comparison. In that day, it was very common for parents to come to the marketplace in their town in order to conduct business or perhaps just to socialize. And what did their children do while their parents were purchasing and selling products or just socializing with others? Well, they played games. And apparently two of the most popular games of that day were the wedding game and the funeral game. Here's how one leading Bible scholar explained these games played by the children of that day. He said wedding and funerals were the two major social events and children like to mimic their elders by performing mock weddings and mock funerals. Weddings involve festive music and dancing and when children played 
the wedding game, they expected everyone to dance when the imaginary flute was being played, just like the grown-ups did in the real wedding. Likewise, when they played the funeral game, they expected everyone to mourn and to wail when the imaginary dirge, that's the sad funeral song, was played, just like the paid mourners did when a person actually died. Now, the way that children were supposed to play these games is that if the wedding game was played, then all the children were supposed to get up and dance around to the happy song being played on the flute, just like at a real wedding. And if the funeral game was played, then all the children were expected, they're supposed to get up to express some sadness in response to the mournful song being sung, just like at a real funeral. But Jesus said that it was his observation that sometimes children didn't do that. Sometimes they didn't play the way they were supposed to play. Notice again verse 32. They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. Now Jesus is telling us about children who just refused to play either of these games, either the wedding or the funeral game. You see, the picture here is one of children calling out to one another in the marketplace. Let's play the wedding game. But their friends answer and say, no, we don't want to play that game. We don't feel like being happy today. And so these same children say, well, okay, then let's play the funeral game. But their friends respond by saying, no, we don't want to play that game either. We don't feel like being sad today. See, the children who refused to play either game, they were just impossible to please. Nothing satisfied them. They didn't want to play a happy game and they didn't want to play a sad game. No matter what the game was that was suggested, they had a problem with it. Now, William Hendrickson was a brilliant theologian. He's written some marvelous commentaries. If you ever have the opportunity to buy a William Hendrickson commentary, do so. In his commentary on Luke, Hendrickson does an outstanding job of capturing what Jesus had in mind by putting this situation in a more modern-day contemporary setting. Here's what he said. We can easily imagine something of this nature happening today. Let's play wedding, says one child. Others chime in. Let Mary be the bride, Ruth the maid of honor, I'll be the groom. Bert can be the best man, Peter the father of the bride, Jack will do a very nice job as the preacher. Yes, let's do that, say some of the others, and they start whistling a wedding march. But many voices scream back in disgust, not that silly stuff, that's not for us. Then let's play a funeral, says the boy who had been the first to suggest playing wedding. And he adds, I'll be the funeral director. The pallbearers are John, Bert, Peter, and Larry. Mike can be the corpse. Poor Mike. I don't know who Mike is, but he was the corpse. Dolefully, the speaker and some others begin to intone a funeral hymn. But their groaning is drowned out by loud protests. Cut it out. We want none of this sad stuff. So a petty quarrel develops in which those who had suggested the games are shouting to their playmates, you're never satisfied. You don't want to play wedding and you don't want to play funeral. What do you want to play? The accused hurl back similar charges. All are unhappy, disgruntled, sulky. Weddings are too silly, too glad. Funerals too gloomy, too sad. Not only are the children peevish and quarrelsome, they're also fickle, inconsistent, What they used to get all excited about, they now look down upon. You get the picture. No, listen, the point that Jesus is making in speaking about these impossible 
to please children, is that this is exactly the way the vast majority of the people of his day were behaving in their attitudes towards he and John. There was just no way they could please them because no matter what they did, they kept coming up with objections to believing in both of them. And these objections were just as foolish and just as ridiculous as the objections given by the children in their silly games. Now, what's the general principle? I told you this is a general principle that the Lord is making. The general principle that Jesus is teaching by the story of children and play is that once someone has decided to object to Christ and continue in their unbelief, they will come up with all kinds of reasons for their unbelief. Even if those reasons are unreasonable, illogical, nonsense, irrational, and they don't make any sense. You can see this. You can see this very easily when you witness to certain non-Christians. No matter what you say to them about Jesus and the gospel, they'll respond by telling you about some problem they have with him and with the faith, with the Christian message. Now, the problem, of course, is never them. It's never them. It's always with Christ or something related to Christianity. For example, sometimes they'll tell you, you know, you're telling me about Jesus, but I got to tell you, it's so hard for me to believe in him because Christ's ways are just too strict. They're too narrow. I can't, I can't live like that. So then you start to explain to them about God's grace and offering them the forgiveness of their sins simply through faith in the Son of God. And they turn around and say, but that's, that's just too easy. No, got to be more complicated than that. There, there must be something I have to do. It can't be that simple. So first it's too strict. Now it's too easy. See, unbelievers have all kinds of reasons for not coming to faith in Christ, but they are inconsistent reasons because these are only excuses covering up the real issue of unbelief, which is what? which is that the unregenerate human heart hates God. Hates God. This is exactly what the doctrine of human depravity, total depravity is all about. This is why I wanted you to be back last Sunday night to understand about that. Being spiritually dead with a fallen, sinful nature, all unbelievers, without any exception, are totally depraved in the sense that their entire being is polluted by sin. Every part of them, their mind is affected. Their wills are affected, their emotions, their affections, all have been contaminated so that instead of loving God, they can't love God because they can't respond properly. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They hate him and they demonstrate their hatred of him by hating everything that God approves of and loving everything that God disapproves of. Here's the way my hero, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He said, why is it that man ever chooses to sin The answer is that man has fallen away from God and as a result, his whole nature has become perverted and sinful. Man's whole bias is away from God. By nature, he hates God and feels that God is opposed to him. His God is himself, his own abilities and powers, his own desires. He objects to the whole thought of God and the demands which God makes upon him. Furthermore, man likes and covets the things that God prohibits and dislikes the things and the kind of life to which God calls him. He said, these are no mere dogmatic statements. They're facts. They alone explain the moral muddle and the ugliness that characterize life to such an extent 
today. And it's because, folks, of their sinful hearts that unbelievers oppose and they reject Christ. Instead of facing their own sin, admitting that they are the problem, their sinfulness, they come up with all kinds of ridiculous, lame excuses as to why they don't believe in Jesus, why they are not a Christian. You know, you can really see the weakness of these excuses in the way that unbelievers often react to you as a Christian, those of us who represent Christ to them. Have you noticed that with some unbelievers, no matter what you do as a follower of Jesus, it's the wrong thing? It's the wrong thing, and they have a problem with it. For example, if you are passionate about your faith in Christ, if you take seriously the Word of God and strive to live by it, then they have a problem with you because, you know what? You're a fanatic. You're a fanatic. It was all right that you believe, but you've gone too far. You take your faith too seriously. They'll make it clear to you they don't want to become a Christian and end up like you. You're obsessed with your faith. Tone it down a little. We might be more attracted to your faith if you just tone it down a little. But if you tone it down and you loosen up a bit so that you begin to be less consistent in your Christian life, and you start compromising some of the truths of Scripture, then they'll charge you with what? Now you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You don't take your faith seriously enough. They'll make it clear to you they don't want to become a Christian and end up like you. So you know what? You can't win. Don't even try. You can't win because no matter what you do, you cannot satisfy people who think like this because they are determined, they are resolute to find some excuse for not believing in Jesus, even if that excuse is just a flimsy, foolish, stubborn, just stubborn, nonsensical response. They're just like stubborn children who refuse to play different games. Now, although Jesus was specifically talking about the foolishness of unbelievers who are never satisfied, never pleased with what they see in Christ or his followers, I do think, though, it is a valid application of this principle to say that there are some believers in Christ who, while certainly not rejecting Christ, they're just as prone to have the same type of attitude that it's never pleased, never satisfied when it comes to things related to the church or spiritual matters. See, there are some Christians who have a continuous griping and complaining spirit about them. No matter what happens in their church, they are never pleased. There's always something that's bothering them that they complain about. If it's not some decision by the leadership of the church, then it's the music. If it's not the music, then it's the air conditioning or their Sunday school class or how the children's department is run or a lack of fellowship or maybe too much emphasis on fellowship and not enough on teaching. And then, of course, there's a substitute speaker in the pulpit. Well, he either speaks too fast or he speaks too slow. Or he has too much application, or he doesn't have enough application. Or he's too intellectual, he's not intellectual enough. And on and on it goes. Listen, when we behave like that, we are just like those foolish children in our Lord's story because nothing ever satisfies us. We find fault with everything. And ultimately, what it means is you're blaming the Lord because if you believe the song we sang a little while ago, he is sovereign over all, then you trust him in all situations. And you believe he's sovereign and this is what he's brought about. So it reveals that behind these complaints is just a sinful heart attitude of being overly critical. A heart that refuses to ever be satisfied and pleased no matter what. 
That's precisely the way that Israel was in their rejection of Jesus and John. Led by the self-righteous religious establishment, there was simply no way to please them. And to substantiate his claim that they could never be pleased, Jesus went on to give a second major point. But now what he does, he gives this point about the foolish irrationality of unbelief, but now he becomes very specific. Now he becomes precise. Now he gives the details of application. And so he goes from unbelievers are just like foolish children who can't be pleased. That's the general principle to the specifics. Unbelievers have foolish criticisms about he and John the Baptist. Notice verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Now notice the first word that the Lord utters in this statement is the word for. It's like the word because. It's it's his way of, of saying this is the reason that I gave the parable about the children playing in the marketplace for their like or because like foolish children who refuse to play the game of funeral, you criticize John the Baptist for being like that funeral game. See, they felt that the way John lived was like a gloomy, sad funeral. That's exactly what they're thinking. And the specific thing they chose to focus on and criticize John about were his eating habits. Notice, instead of enjoying bread and wine as one would do at a joyous wedding, they said John refused bread. He refused wine. He only ate locusts and wild honey. And so his lifestyle seemed so grim and morose that it reminded them of a funeral and they just didn't like it. They didn't like it. Nobody likes a funeral. They didn't like it. And though Jesus only mentioned, understand, only mentioned their criticism of John's austere lifestyle in the foods that he refrained from eating, no doubt the people of that day also were critical of John's preaching. Why? Because that also reminded them of a sad funeral concerning the preaching of John the Baptist and why the people of Israel would have likened it to a funeral lament. John MacArthur said this, he said John's ministry was a somber, serious dirge sounding a warning of coming judgment and proclaiming to sinners the need for repentance and mourning over sin. The tone of his preaching was fearful, frightening, and confrontational. John's message was a severe one with little emphasis on grace and mercy. His focus was on God's wrath and vengeance and he challenged his hearers to repent or be consumed by the fiery judgment that was coming. As I told you though, at one time the people of Israel hailed John as a prophet. They now looked at his lifestyle of severe self-denial and his message of repentance and judgment and they compared it to a sad, gloomy funeral and they wanted nothing to do with it. But more than a sad funeral that they wanted no part of, Notice that they concluded that the way John lived proved that he was more than just a Debbie Downer. He was a demon-possessed man. That's what Jesus said the people of Israel thought of John. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Now, how did they come up with that assessment? Well, they said that he lived like a deranged madman, like a demon-possessed man would live because... He didn't eat and drink like a normal person eats and drinks. And the truth of the matter is that John did live 
differently than other people. John lived a strict ascetic lifestyle in the desert. He did wear unusual camel hair clothing and he had a strange diet of locusts and honey. And the people said, who lives like that? Only someone who's out of their mind. He's got a demon living inside of him, so we're not going to believe anything he says. You see, in essence, John was just like that funeral game that the Trogram played. He made people feel sad. Once he lived such a, a serious and austere life, and he preached such a severe message of repentance and judgment that the people said, we don't want a faith like that. We don't want a faith like that. We want to be happy. We don't want to be sad. We don't want our faith to have these unpleasantries. We want a faith where you can live like a normal person lives. A faith where you can have a normal social interaction with others. We want our lifestyle to be cheerful and not as restricted as John's lifestyle. Now, though they certainly had that attitude and may even have said words to that effect, that's not the real reason they rejected John and his ministry. It was only a facade, an excuse in order to justify in their minds their rejection of John's message of repentance from their sin. How do we know this? Well, we know this because if they had really wanted a faith and a lifestyle that embraced a cheerful and happy social interaction with others, then that's exactly the way that Jesus lived. Exactly. But that wasn't the issue at all. It really didn't matter how John lived or how Jesus lived. These people were determined to reject both John and Jesus regardless of their lifestyles. And the proof of this is that just as they had a problem with John the Baptist for not eating and drinking like other people did, they also had a problem with Jesus because he did eat and he did drink just like other people. And as Jesus continues, he reveals this by stating their foolish criticism of him. Verse 34. The son of man, that's him, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if John the Baptist was like that sad funeral game that the children played, then Jesus was like the happy wedding game that the children played. You see, in contrast to John, who didn't enjoy the normal Jewish social customs of his day, Jesus did enjoy them. He did enjoy them. Remember, not only is he God, he's man. And as man, he enjoyed these social customs. Jesus ate and Jesus drank like everyone else of his day. He socialized with people from all walks of life. He even went to dinner parties where people partook of normal food and wine, and he joined them, and he partook of, of normal foods and wine like all the Jewish people of his time. But in spite of living a completely different lifestyle than John the Baptist, Christ's enemies still rejected him. And to justify their rejection of him, they inaccurately exaggerated his social behavior by claiming he was a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of wicked people, meaning what? Meaning that he was a friend of wicked people because he was just like those wicked people. He was one of them. That's why he hung with them. But he wasn't one of them in the sense of sinfulness. That wasn't the case at all. Jesus did not eat and drink in excess. He was not gluttonous. He was never drunk. His dietary habits were just like any other typical member of Jewish society. 
Now, my friends, do you see what Jesus is saying? By revealing these contrasting criticisms about John and himself. He's saying that it really didn't matter how he and John lived because these people, they were determined not to believe in him and his message of salvation, no matter what. They said, we're not going to believe in Jesus because his messenger, John, is just not enough like other people. He's bizarre. He acts like a deranged, demonic man. But we're not going to believe in Jesus either because he's too much like other people who are wicked sinners. That's why I say this is nonsense. Ridiculous. It makes no sense. But that was their reasoning. Their reasoning was completely irrational, illogical. They were just like those foolish and unreasonable bratty children in the marketplace who stubbornly refused to play any games their friends wanted to play. So finally, finally, we we now come to the real issue. The real issue is to why the vast majority of Jewish people of that day rejected Jesus. We know that it had nothing to do at all with the social lives of either John or Jesus. So, why did they reject Jesus? Well, Luke has actually told us why. If you look back at verse 30, you'll see why. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, Luke has already told us that the Pharisees and the legal experts in the Mosaic law, they refused when they heard John say repent, they refused to repent of their sin, and therefore they refused to be baptized by John. In other words, they were too self-righteous to acknowledge and confess that they had any sins to repent of. These men prided themselves on keeping the laws of God. Now, they didn't keep the laws of God, but they thought they did, and they prided themselves on keeping, really, their own traditions and laws so that they didn't see themselves as sinners who needed to repent in approaching God in His perfect holiness. And the majority of the people in Israel foolishly followed their leaders. They shouldn't have, but they foolishly followed their leaders. And they joined them in rejecting Christ by giving these ridiculous reasons for their unbelief when the real reason for their rejection was just a stubborn unwillingness to admit their sinfulness and therefore their need of salvation in Christ by repenting of their sins and trusting Him as their Savior. So they rejected John and his message of repentance, and they rejected Jesus and his salvation that he offered them, and they hid behind their wicked unbelief by coming up with the absolutely ridiculous notion that the reason they didn't embrace Christ and his teaching is because, well, John was just too sad in his tastes, and Jesus was just too glad for their tastes. So they said, we're not going to believe in either of them. And that's why Jesus said his generation was just like stubborn, bratty little children who can never be pleased because all they really wanted was their own way and not God's way. That's the bottom line. Now, folks, nothing has really changed. Unbelievers still give these foolish and irrational reasons for not coming to Christ for salvation. But understand, they're just excuses. That's all. They're just excuses. The real reason an individual refuses Christ is because they hate God And they love their sin. And because they love their sin, the last thing they want to do is repent of their sin and make changes in their lives. They don't want to follow the narrow road of obedience to Christ. 
Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3, 19 and 20. He said, this is the judgment that the light, he is the light, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness, means the darkness of their own sin, rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's the issue. Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Listen, don't be intimidated by the excuses and arguments people give you for why they reject Christ. These are just foolish excuses that cover up the real reason. Like the Pharisees, they reject God's purpose in their lives. They refuse to bend their stubborn and rebellious hearts to God. They love their sin and they are not interested in changing. And that's why we know only the Lord can change a sinner like that, which we all were at one time and some still are. But not only was that generation in Christ day sinfully rebellious of God's way of salvation, they were so wrong, absolutely wrong, inaccurate in their evaluations of both John and Jesus because they refused to see the wisdom of God that both these men had in their lives and teaching. John lived the way he was supposed to live and obviously Jesus lived a perfect life. They rejected the wisdom of God that both of these men exhibited in their lives and in their teaching and that wisdom is what Jesus briefly mentions at the end of this passage in verse 35. It's just a brief sentence but an important one. Yet wisdom, Jesus said, is vindicated by all her children. And what does the Lord mean by this statement? He simply means that the wisdom of John in both his life and his message of repentance and his own wisdom, Christ's own wisdom in both his life and his message of salvation, they've been vindicated in the sense that their wisdom has proven to be right. It's proven to be true. How? Well, the ones who have proved it to be right and true are the children of wisdom, meaning all those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the proof of such vindication is that those who have accepted Christ, the children of wisdom, the children of God, they've experienced salvation. They know Christ. They know God. They have a relationship. They're forgiven of their sins. While others who rejected such wisdom, they don't experience this. They're still in their darkness. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses. In other words, the wisdom of both John and Jesus in telling people that they needed to repent, they needed to be converted in spite of great opposition is shown now to be true by all those people like you who have accepted the gospel because you're walking in the way of wisdom, which is God's way. It's the way of salvation. So, the question is, where do you stand? I said you, but I understand in an audience like this, there are unbelievers at every age level and people who are watching today. Where do you stand when it comes to Jesus Christ? Are you like the people of that day who made these foolish excuses for rejecting him? When the real issue is your self-righteousness, your self-righteous pride, that's all it is. Your self-righteous pride that refuses to honestly admit you're the problem. It's your sinfulness. And you need to see yourself as one in great need of repentance and salvation. You need to see yourself as God sees you. He loves you. But if you've never turned to him for salvation, you're a lost sinner. And the only way you can be delivered from your lostness and from an eternity in hell 
is by turning to Christ, turning away from your sin. You say, what sin do I have? Well, I'm sure you have all kinds of sins, but the heart of it is self-centeredness. It's being self-absorbed. That's the heart of all of our sin. You turn from that. You turn to Christ and you admit your sinfulness and you repent and you place your trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross for your salvation. That's the only way of escape. That's the only way. Let today be the day of your salvation, not tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow left. Almost every week from this pulpit, either Joe or Joel announces that somebody has died in our congregation or somebody who knows somebody or a family member has died. Someday that will be you. You will die. I will die. The question is, are you prepared to die? And the only way to prepare to die is by trusting Christ and Christ alone, not the church, not baptism, not membership, not your good deeds. It's Christ alone and his death on the cross as sufficient for God to forgive you of his sins and to place Christ's imputed righteousness on your account. My friends, that's the only hope you have. There is no other hope. I trust, I pray that today, if you don't know Christ, young person, old person, older person, middle-aged person, today is the day of your salvation. And if you are a believer in Christ, then understand why people reject him. People you love, people you witness to, people you pray for, it's because they love their sin, they don't want to repent. So don't be intimidated by their excuses, even if they're intellectual excuses and you have no idea what they're even talking about. They're just excuses. The real issue is their sinful heart. So what do you do? You keep being faithful to preach the word. Even if in your heart you want to avoid the unpleasantries of their opposition, be faithful to the truth. The truth offends people, but be faithful to the end. Proclaim Christ. Don't compromise. Speak the truth. And if they get annoyed at you, then they get annoyed at you. It could be a lot worse. You could be like those great martyrs in the Reformation who were burned at the stake. It won't happen to you. Not now. They'll just be annoyed at you. So what? So what? Better to have people annoyed at you than the Lord annoyed at you. Be faithful to him. Some will believe. Some will believe. God will sovereignly work in their hearts and bring them to faith. And they will prove that the way of true wisdom is salvation in Christ and only in Christ. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, about accepting Christ, then as we close the service, I'll be up here at the front. Just come and see me. Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for explaining so clearly to us the real heart of unbelief. It has nothing to do with these lame excuses people make. These are just cover-ups for the, the heart of unbelief, a heart that is determined to live by the way they want to live and not bend to you. Lord, I thank you for each one here who has truly repented and trusted Christ as their Savior. And I pray for those who have not that today will be the day of salvation. They, they don't know if they have tomorrow. You are indeed sovereign and you can take a life at any time, Lord. And we, we want to make sure that our people know you. And so, Lord, as the gospel has been proclaimed, as the word has gone forth, we pray that faith will come as people have heard the word and some today will respond to salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, we pray, help us to not be intimidated by the foolishness of unbelievers. Help us to know the issues and to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.